girls are complicated. Listeners to episode 43 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. This is Sheila Woodruff, resident of Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with panelist Carla Ewert and increasingly regular guest panelist on the CFP, Nathan Gilmore. Carla, will you say a bit about yourself and then pass off to Nathan? Sure. Um, my name is Carla Ewert, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I work for an organization called the Open Network, which is a, an organization that pulls together progressive. Um, progressive communities of faith from sort of an evangelical background. Um, so I do that. I live here with my husband and my two daughters. And yeah, that's me. Nathan? I am Nathan Gilmore. Um, I'm an associate professor of English here at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Um, my wife Mary and I actually live west of Athens, so I've got a big old long commute. And I coach both my son Micah and my daughter Miriam in baseball. And that starts up this Thursday, and I'm excited about it. Sounds <laughs> great. Um, and I'm Sheila. Like I said, I live in Louisville with my family. Um, my husband's a civil engineer, and they're finishing work on a bridge here. So we're we're starting to think about. Oh my goodness! Next, <laughs> I know. Sheila, um, my husband is also a civil engineer who designs bridges. Oh, are you? Serious? Okay, we'll have to <laughs> have curious. a longer conversation when we're done. Yes, <laughs> I can't believe hilarious. we haven't figured that out before then. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we we have uh, two little kids. Um, our daughter just turned four, and our son just turned two, and they're both going to be in school together. School in quotation marks um, for the first time this year. So we're excited. I'm excited since I stay home with them to give them a little bit of time to do something else and give me a little bit of time to do something else. So, yeah, it's going to be a fun year. Well, we're here today talking about Paul. And I have to say, since we start, like, as in St. Paul, you know, writer of lots of letters and things in the Bible. um, And (laughs) since we started recording this podcast, I've felt this, like, deep-seated need to discuss him and his writing and what he means to us as Christian feminists. And, yes, obviously, the feminists we've talked about a lot of times there are a plurality of definitions to that word and we all come to it in different ways but still like Paul is important to women in the church Um, and yet as we brainstorm and think about new episodes each semester I've repeatedly just like turned and ran in the opposite direction Um, it's a little intimidating for me because there's so much scholarship on Paul and what he's written Um, that it can be overwhelming, especially for me. And much of it is outside of my scholarly purview and ability. So I've just, like I said, kind of run away. Um, But a a few of these verses that we're going to talk about today have so significantly shaped the participation of women in the church and how a lot of people view um, the church, view Christianity, view patriarchy as alive and well in the church, that it seemed necessary that a show like ours that calls itself both Christian and feminist should get to him eventually. Um, 
I think we started to scratch the surface on this when we did episodes on complementarianism and egalitarianism this spring. I don't know if you guys had thoughts about that or not. It seemed like good timing. Um, this episode would have come before those and we ended up having to postpone it. So <laughs> didn't know if you had any comments about that. Uh, I will say I've, I've recommended that pair of episodes to everyone who will listen and some people who don't. Uh, they were a very good pair of episodes. Yeah, I got to do I got to be on the egalitarian panel um, for that, that one. And um, yeah, I felt like the conversation was really insightful on both sides. And there were lots of um, important things said about the way that we have built our positions on that. Um, so yeah, I, thought, I agree. Those are really important episodes, I think, for the podcast in general, for people who are interested in Christian feminism. Um, yeah, I think it's great. Um, Sheila, you said wondering if we'd had any experiences with these interpretations. Is that... Yep, that's the next. Is that question. fair game? Go for <laughs> okay. it. Okay, cool. Um, so one of the I grew up in a in a I would almost I would call it a fundamentalist uh, church that that believes uh, very much in the inerrancy and of scripture and and um, interpretation that is uh, literal. Um, and so those things these these Pauline verses were of course important in understanding women and leadership in the church. Um, and so my experience with that, I have one particular story that, that comes back to me every time, and it is that I um, went to Bible college. I got through, you know, this fundamental upbringing, which I have very loving, wonderful parents. So it wasn't, I make it sound like it was really difficult, and I actually have a fantastic childhood. But I went to Bible college, and I went to a Bible college that followed those same streams. And in our ministries, our, like 101 class, we had to take uh, a spiritual giftedness test. And um, so we took that test, and I, we did it all, and I got my results, and my results were pastor and shepherd. Um, and I remember having this moment, knowing full well what my what my tradition believed about women in leadership. But I remember having this moment of identity with that with that particular result, and thinking, "Oh, I knew it! I knew this was a thing for me." And then having my professor get up, you know, within minutes of our results, and saying, "By the way, if you're a woman and you tested as a pastor or a shepherd, there are a lot of appropriate ways in which you can use that gift." Um, and I remember being almost embarrassed that I had have a, had a had a bit of pride in that result or a bit of identity with that result. Um, so that's that's the moment that these verses come come back to me and have definitely impacted the way that I've structured my life and the decisions I've made in terms of career and study and all of that, where I've been moved away from ministry and moved into other streams in order to to appropriately fulfill my my callings. So Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's, I can only imagine how I would have felt in a similar situation because I, too, test high on, um, I think it usually comes out as leadership when I do spiritual gift testing, um, leadership and teaching, right. which, again, like those would be similar hmm. calls, I would assume, that I would only right. be allowed to teach women and children um, had I come from a more fundamentalist background. So, Nathan, did mm -hmm. you want to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, my experience is a little bit more recent. Um here, maybe four or five years ago, uh, I was still at the church where I was preaching. Uh, they fired me about a year and a half ago. That's another story for another day. Uh, but uh, a, a question came up, you know, among the uh, young women in the youth group, you know, why is it that we can't, you know, uh, speak in church? Why is it that, you know, we can't do these things? So the elders, you know, said, okay, we need to address that. And, you know, they knew that I study Greek and, you know, I told them, yeah, I mean, I can, I can work up, you know, a curriculum where we can look through the Greek texts of the sort of, you know, hot button women in ministry issues. And so I started to do that. You know, I sank some fairly significant hours into it. And really up to then, I was sort of a, 
live and let live sort when it came to these sorts of things. If your church ordained women, great. I think that's awesome. If your church didn't ordain women, great. You know, I don't personally agree with that, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to make that a matter of liberty rather than of dogma. After I sank in those hours, uh, and I would say, you know, it was over the course of, you know, a couple weeks and, you know, kind of getting up early in the morning, looking at the Greek text, comparing English translations, all of that. I, I became utterly convinced that the King James translation, first and foremost, and a lot of translations that follow in its footsteps had really cheated in the way that they translated these things into English, that what I saw on the page when I read the English Bible just wasn't there in the Greek. Well, I brought that to the elders of the church and they met it with some tremendous resistance, but it eventually, um, and of course now in hindsight, maybe they weren't so convinced. Maybe that's why I got canned about a year and a half later, but um, I had them convinced that, okay, you know, if this was a real desire, the actual Greek text of the new Testament really does lean towards women serving in teaching, prophesying, uh, you know, proclamation roles in the Christian congregation and we probably ought to start moving in that direction. Now, wow. as it turned out, um, unfortunately, as these things often happen, uh, some of the young women who were interested in that lost interest when they started a side feud, which kind of consumed the church for about the next year and their families and everything along with that. But as far as my own views on these things. I mean, I would point to that span of time, you know, right around 2013 or so, uh, when I became just fully convinced that women's ordination was not merely a matter of liberty where one congregation could do as they do, another could do as they do. But I mean, if you're following what the text, the vision that the text actually sets forward, I'll put it that way, that you really do have to be open to the possibility that women are going to be preaching. That's fascinating. I'd love to see that research. <laughs> that would be great. I, I, unfortunately, I think it got lost when a hard drive got corrupted. But I, 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 I'll tell you both what. I mean, I will look for it after we record. I didn't know I was going to tell that story when, before we were recording. <laughs> so uh, if I can find that, I'll uh, put a link to it in the show notes. That would be fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, if I had known that you were going to tell that story, I would have told you know my experience first. Because that was a nice progression through things. I, I grew up in, Carla, I think very um, much the opposite of your your church background. And um, I've been a United Methodist my whole life and mm -hmm. you know, grew up the as long as I remember the church has been ordaining women um, to serve in active ministry as pastors. And it's been a progression. It's not been an easy road, I know. But um, I, I I mean, I grew up my the very first church that I remember that my dad serving as a full elder um, very soon after he was ordained our church merged with another and we had an african-american female pastor co-pastoring this church with my dad and it was like what an amazing experience and diversity and female leadership um, mm -hmm. i mean i was no more than maybe nine years old when that happened so from very early on that was that was my rule and the and then let's see the next two churches we moved to as I was growing up through school before I moved out of the house, they, they both have women in pastoral roles as well, sharing um, leadership with my dad, who was, you know, always a pastor of the church too. So it's been, 
yeah, very different and interesting that we've all had these experiences. But Nathan, that would be amazing to get to read some of your Greek research on this to go back. Well, to. well, well now, well, now I have a motivation to go find. <laughs> <laughs> Among all of the other things that you do, um, so so it does like. I kind of assumed that this would be the case. I mean, it bears out and seems necessary that we take these little steps today into the waters of Paul and, and scholarship around him. Um, we chose as our text um, a, a paper prepared by N.T. Wright, who I called in my show notes, the British bastion of accessible yet deeply intellectual New Testament scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. I'm sure some of our listeners have read some of what he's written. Um but Nathan, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about him and his body of work. Certainly. When we talk about N.T. Wright, we're talking about someone who has been in the Academy and in the Church of England and really has one foot in each of those worlds in everything he does. As a bishop, uh, he was still publishing Bible commentaries. He was, you know, a very public figure. You know, I mean, I, I think he did an appearance on the Colbert Report. Uh, you know, where he was sort of, you know, advancing this very historically aware biblical scholarship. And then, you know, when he resigned his bishopric uh, here a few years ago so that he could finish his gigantic, massive 1,600-page book on Paul, which I have not finished. I'll go ahead and say that at the outset. Um, you know, he still had a heart and a mind to write for church people. Now, What's interesting about his books is that, you know, they are not published as, you know, this or that university press books. Uh, so it's hard to say the extent to which they are popular books and the extent to which they are academic books. I mean, I'd say they're, they are that sort of um, happy hybrid uh, where people in, in both worlds can read and enjoy them. His, his most famous series of books is called um, Christian or no. Yeah, that's right. Christian Origins and the Question of God. Uh, I'm looking at them on my shelf, but it doesn't have the series title on the spines. Uh, so it began with the New Testament and the people of God, then Jesus and the victory of God, which is sort of one of my go-to books when I preach. The Resurrection of the Son of God followed that one. Each one of these you know, was progressively longer. The first was about 550 pages, then 650, then 750 and then Paul and the Faithfulness of God, there's about a 15-year gap between parts three and four. And uh, Paul and the Faithfulness of God was, like I said, 1,600 pages. So everyone fears that uh, our bookshelves won't be able to hold part five, which he you know, set out 20 years ago to, to write. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if I'll ever you know, read fast enough to get to all of it. But uh, that's sort of the career of N.T. Wright. Like I said, just prolific publisher university teacher, bishop, uh, Colbert Rapport guest. And if anybody needs an accessible, like super accessible starting point, I think the first book I read of his was at the public library. It was Paul for Everyone, and it was letters, like his um, prison letters. And that's some of the Bible commentaries probably that you're referring to, and they're they're so easy to read and yet full of information and perspective that I just hadn't had before I read those, which was really great. Oh, yeah. I've, I've actually used that commentary to teach uh, Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> simplistic but, but wonderful but one I don't know simplistic in the writing but not in the content mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um as I was doing some research at the beginning of this before we got started on this episode um I ran across the concept of the new perspective on Paul and I thought it might be worth just talking really briefly about that what that means and how that like 
comments on the conversation we're having here. And Nathan, you said you'd be willing to talk about that too. Sorry, we're front loading you on this episode. Yeah. No, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll admit both times I've been on the Christian feminist podcast, I come in here terrified that I'm going to talk too much, but um, <laughs> since you're requesting it, I'll talk a bit more. Yes, uh, the new perspective on Paul is, uh, actually, the name that they gave themselves, I, I was researching for this episode, I always thought it was uh, something that someone else had pinned on them, uh, but a, a, a scholar named James Dunn came up with that title. It's a an approach to Paul that really sort of follows the renaissance in historical Jesus scholarship for the first half of the 20th century. It tries to situate the rhetoric and the vocabulary and the images of Paul's letters against a historically reconstructed, to be sure, first-century Judaism. Uh, a couple of the big sort of monumental books in this in this uh, project are, uh, oh, shoot, I, I just blanked on his name, um, E.P. Sanders, there we go. His 1977 book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, uh, was just huge for this. Uh, N.T. Wright himself, who differs pretty substantially from Sanders, has sort of become the popular face of it. But their project is basically this, to be aware historically of what questions the scriptures are answering. One thing that people honestly get wrong about N.T. Wright a fair bit is that he has no use for John Calvin, Martin Luther, St. Augustine, so on and so forth. He does, but he also insists that we do that reconstructive historical work for the period in which Augustine is working, the period in which Luther is working, the period in which Calvin is working, because the Holy Scriptures are the sort of text because of their place in the community, and, as N.T. Wright himself would say, because they are divinely inspired text, that they can be the answer to a plurality of questions. What he wants to be sure of, though, is that we remain aware that at the moment of their composition, at the moment of their first reception— they were answering a certain set of first-century Jewish questions uh, that are not identical with the questions that Augustine or Calvin or Luther was answering, much less 21st-century evangelicals. So he wants to say that, you know, seek first the uh, first-century understanding of the text, and Luther and Calvin will be added unto you. <laughs> That's great. So I, I was just at- yeah, I was just having a conversation about this with my boss, Doug Paget, and we were talking. He was talking about N.T. Wright's um, approach in sort of the third act work with scripture, and that yes. we have the first and second acts written, right? And our job is to write the third act, but you need to know the first and second act really well to write the third act in the same spirit, right? But that mm-hmm. you do have, like you're saying, a responsibility to write that act in response to the questions being asked, asked in your time without forgetting, like you're saying, the first century questions that were being asked at the time that the first or that the second act was written. So, so I think that idea that we actually have the power of writing an act that is in line with what has been done, but isn't necessarily a repetition of it, um, mm-hmm. is an interesting way to see that. I don't know if you have experience with N.T. Wright uh, talking about that, Nathan, at all? Or uh, Yeah, I mean, that, that language, I mean, appears in a number of his books. The one that I'm most familiar with is the New Testament and the People of God. And you're right. I mean, he says that if you imagine God's life with the world as a story you can think about uh and there he actually talks about it in five acts i guess he had shakespeare on the brain uh where the first act is the world up to abraham and the second act is abraham uh on up through sort of the second temple period Mm. the third act being the life of jesus the fourth act being where we are 
and then the fifth act being the kingdom to come. So yeah, I mean, he's big on imagining ourselves not as the direct addressees of the text of the New Testament, but nonetheless part of the story that the New right. Testament tells. Right, right. I, was th I think that's a really interesting way to think about it in terms of our own empowerment and also our responsibility, mm -hmm. um, that those are, those are dual things, that we have a responsibility to what's come before, and also an empowerment um, to, to understand our own internal story along with the, the scripture story um, and not, not abdicate that power, um, but take mm -hmm. it up as a part of our process. Um, uh, yeah, so I think, I think that's an interesting approach. Thanks for sharing the bit of background, Nathan, so we can kind of go into this piece with a little bit of context, um, which seems mm -hmm. appropriate for what we're talking about. So um, the piece we read for today was actually a paper that Wright presented at the 2004 symposium, Men, Women, and the Church, put on by uh, appropriately named groups, including Christians for Biblical Equality, Women in the Church, and Men, Women, and God, um, with their various <laughs> acronyms. Um, so real briefly, Wright begins the paper with introductory marks, remarks acknowledging that the conference, which was, I believe, held in Britain, but had um, a fair amount of American organizers and attendees, had as part of its aim the idea of equality and brings up the concepts of egalitarian and complementarian viewpoints, um, neither of which he admits to fully agreeing with. In this paper, he makes the fair point that each side has valid points, but often requires strict adherence to a whole number of polarized viewpoints and cultural position, positions. His illustration was, you know, there are boxes that you have to tick if you belong to this particular um, theory, um, but that those positions may not actually hold up to biblical scrutiny. Um, he did confess that he was comfortable speaking about equality as it relates to women in their ministry in the church, which he says was his welcome limitation of the subject for the paper. So before we get to his exegetical sections, he um, he wanted to point out, so I figured we should too, that all of his comments are within the framework of Genesis 1, the story of creation, and he notes how most of creation is divided into male and female um, and tells us in this piece that, quote, if it means it means, if anything, it's all the more important being male and being female and working out what that means, um, that it's something most of creation is called to do and be. And unless we are to collapse into a kind of Gnosticism where the way things are in creation is regarded as secondary and shabby over against what we are now to do with it, we have to recognize, respect, and respond to this call of God to live in the world he's made and as the people he's, he has made us. Um, so I think he was trying to do away with this idea of like, compressing gender and identity into like one sphere you know one one sphere and saying like well we're all people in this way and he he doesn't go into great detail about separating the pastoral necessity of male and female but points to the fact that like we were made as male and female and that's important and good and kind of how he's grounding his text so i just wanted to throw out if you guys had any questions or comments about that and then we can dive in yeah I think that it strikes me just a little bit wrong, um, not wrong, um, a little bit simplistic in that, and I, heaven forbid I call right simplistic, but I think this idea that, that male and female are, are primary, I mean, they are certainly primary categories. I, I think the binary is as problematic as any binary. Um, and I think that gender is a thing that we are working out and that our categories have up to now been very, very limiting for the most part. Um, and, and have have contributed to 
the subjugation of women um, because we've been so assigned into categories and roles and those kinds of things that we haven't been able to define for ourselves as individuals the thing that would be our desire or our understanding or we've sort of been obligated to our category first and then our individual. Um, I think it's interesting that, and I think even the observation that most of creation is divided into male and female is a, is a, is a little bit... Um, I think there are lots of parts of creation that are that are not gendered, and I think that that's interesting. Plants and, and animals and humans, okay, yes, lots of gender, but when you get down to a, you know, a, a smaller micro level, I think it's it's really interesting the different ways that our creation can create itself and and do all of these things that aren't gendered. Um, so I I think it's a little bit overly binary. The way that he laid it out was problematic for me, um, and I I would tend to do the very thing that he he is saying warning against, which is to take the individual before the gender um, and make that individual understanding of oneself more important than the gendered understanding and let them define a gender out, out of that. That said, clearly these these two ways of being or, or biological states are, are very prevalent and important in our in our world. It's, it's you can't you can't have our humanity without male and female. Um, so I think I think it's a complicated issue, but I, I, I was I found it a little troublesome the way that he laid it out is these two things are are the most important part of our understanding of creation that felt uh, pr pretty uh, simplified in my in my understanding. It's interesting. When I read that part, I saw it as sort of a warning against, I guess, one way to appropriate, uh, you know, gender theory uh, rather than a dismissal of gender theory in, in toto. And I, and I guess the danger that I saw him trying to address was a strong separation of human beings from the rest of mammals. Right. Uh, and so it's interesting. I mean, now, now that I hear your take on it, I mean, I, I realized that I didn't see that when I read it, uh, which isn't to say that it isn't there. It's just to say that, you know, um, I read it just sort of as a, you know, an introductory caution, you know, okay, as we do this, let's remember that we are mammals and proceed from there. Uh, mm. That said, I mean, I, you know, um, I need to think about it more. So I want to hear more from you. <laughs> Right, right. No, I, it'll be interesting as we talk through it, because I think he reiterates that, and you have it in the show notes here, Sheila, to talk more about that in terms of culture differences. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think there's more to come. Yeah, and I'm curious, too, if anything would have changed. I mean, this was 2004, so 12 years down the road, if he would have changed his remarks or um, those introductory comments in any way. I, I don't know. I haven't read enough of what he's written since then to know, but... Um, whether he would have made a larger, larger conversation than it seems like it was made for this specific place in time for this symposium for this particular issue. Mm -hmm. right. Um, right. Well, let's jump into some of these sections that he talks about. Um, he kind of gives us four main sections of text to consider from the Bible, Galatians 3.28, Acts in the Gospels, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, all sections which point to women's roles or limitations in the church, um, so which is you know why he talks about them. So if you're following along in your home pew Bibles, then you might want to grab those so you can read with <laughs> us. Um, we're going to start with the Gospel and Acts. He starts with Galatians, but I wanted to start here instead. So he, I think he does a lot of situating Paul um, within the context of the Gospels and how the women women are portrayed in the Gospels and in Acts. So. Um, Carla or Nathan, either of you, would would you tell us a little bit about um, women around Jesus and in the early church, and 
maybe then tell us why this information is necessary for understanding what Paul says in his letters. Carla, I'm talking too much. Why don't you start? <laughs> okay, that sounds fine. Um, part of what he talks about in the Gospel and Acts is he starts with, and again, this is this was a moment for me that I had to deal with my my response that I'm not sure I'm not sure what to make of it. But he said he starts his passage on the Gospels by by saying we gain nothing by ignoring the fact that Jesus to chose twelve male male apostles. Um, and he, he says there were no doubt all kinds of reasons for this, within, both within the symbolic world in which he was operating and the practical and cultural world in which they would have to live and work. Um, but I, th I think that was, it's an interesting thing to point out because my, I immediately said, no, 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 there were all kinds of women apostles too, <laughs> you know? Um, it's just that these were the ones that were named. And that makes me ask a question about um, the people who were writing the Gospels, why they chose to, to focus on these 12 and, and why there wasn't more conversation around the women who who were constantly with this group of people um like that that felt interesting to me but nevertheless it is a point so he made that point um and then he talked about um at the cross uh, at the crucifixion when all the disciples forsake jesus and run away at that point it's the women who are who are there mary magdalene and mary and um all of these all of these women who who remain and stay stay faithful in some way that these apostles didn't um so he talks about this in, in a couple of ways um, uh, he talks about, oh, then, sorry, I'm going to get, I'll get back to that. But the other thing he talked about was the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Um, and I, I found this really interesting. Um, and he, he addresses the fact that we kind of grew up with that story in that Martha was the active type and Mary was the con contemplative type. And so they were sort of representing these two types. Um, mm -hmm. And that Martha was frustrated because she was being left to do all the work while Mary was sitting there. But what Wright points out is that that's actually only part of the story. That's not really it. Part of the deal was is that Mary had put herself in the male part of the house, the part where the men were to have gathered, to learn from, to sit at the feet of Jesus as a rabbi, and thereby learning from him so that they can then teach. Like that was, the, that, was that space that was set up. And that's where Mary inserted herself and where she was protected by Jesus and, and him declaring that she has the right to be there, the right to learn at his feet. Um, so what Martha was protesting was, was in part her sort of abandoning social norms and role norms, gender norms, to be where she was, um, and that Jesus protected that. So that, that was an interesting uh, further reading, reading of that story that I hadn't necessarily heard before. Um, so I thought that in terms of Jesus's approach to women, it's a constant reiteration of their their place at the table, their their place in in his life and in his work. Um, so that that was great. Um, and then he talked about um, how Ken Bailey was someone who's done a lot of work in the Middle East recently um, in terms of the women uh, being as you get into Acts and you're talking about Paul and his persecution of, of Christians, it talks about him throwing both men and women into prison. And so Ken Bailey, who's done a lot of research in the Middle East, talks about even during these times of, of conflict and troubles of the troubles in Lebanon and those types of things, like men on all sides are, hide, are hiding. They, they have to be out of sight, but women are still free to come and go because they are not considered threats. They're not considered part of the conflict. And so the fact that women were being persecuted by Paul in the same way that men were implies that they were in leadership and they were considered as much a part of the threat as the men were. Um, so that was interesting. And I wondered about that even in terms of, of the, the situation at the cross when the men felt like they had to go into hiding, but the women still felt that they had free access. Um, so those things are, are interesting about that. Do, do you guys have anything to add to that that I missed? I have to say, first, I, I love that you picked up um, on what Kim Bailey was saying. I was thinking of um, 
like the the revolution in Algeria. When was that? Gosh. Oh, historian tell me, was that like the 80s? Or I, I just remember watching films of post-colonial classes in college about the Algerian revolution and these women who were, you know, it was like the beginning of women as part of subversive terrorist movements and the country, you know, terrorists from the colonial perspective movements in the country. Um, so like those things definitely resounded. And the part of the, the Mary Martha story that was new to me, I'd thought about that perspective that Mary was in the male part of the house. I've thought about that and been told about that before. But the part that struck me was that she was learning just as the other disciples were learning, not just to learn for her own edification, but as an active learning so she could go teach. Um, and that that part of it was just as implicit in sitting and listening to Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. So that was important to me. And then I just wanted to um, suggest a different reading to the, the beginning that you picked up on when you said that we gain nothing by ignoring the fact that Jesus chose 12 male disciples, um, apostles. I was kind of reading this and maybe I was reading too much into British culture, but having spent a little bit of time in Britain and having friends who spent considerably more time in Britain there there's definitely a cultural um I don't know have the right word for it right now but like this kind of wall that you have to overcome when you're having these conversations there there's a big push in a lot of like mainstream British culture that like well Christianity is just wrong and the Church of England you know Anglican Church and what have you are have have to push back against this considerably and so this wasn't so much to me a like pay attention to the fact that the male apostles are male so much as it was like, yes, yes, that's fine. They were, that's okay. But look at what else is important here. Like if you, if you spend right. so much time looking at that and focusing on that, you're missing the point, which was that having all of these other women listed by name and, um, and sometimes just, you know, as women who walked with the disciples misses the point that, um, right. their participation was every bit as real and, and important, um, as these other mm -hmm. disciples. So. That's how right. I read that's it. helpful. Yeah, that's helpful. I think to to overemphasize, he he needs to get out of the way to say, okay, so what? Onward, um, and that that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right. And as as he notes later on in that section, you know, at the end of the epistle to the Romans, Saint Paul names Junia as among the apostles. Uh, right. So you know, even even the title apostle is not something that is you know univocal or univocal. I never can remember where the accent goes on that word. Uh, <laughs> even within the New Testament, right? Um, it's a, it's a term that is up for grabs, even as you navigate the text of the New Testament. Right. Right. Well, let's move on to the next section then, um, trying to make this not an hour and a half long episode, but we'll see how we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we tend to go over, especially when I'm on the show. Um, we're going to look at Galatians 3.28 and I figured I would just start by reading it since not every... But he might be as familiar with it as Wright was when he gave the remarks. Um, so this is from this is from the NIV, which maybe I should have chosen a different version, but that's what popped up. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he um, has this passage listed first in his paper because, well, I'm not exactly sure why because, but he, he starts out talking about the, the main point of this section is that like all of these descriptions, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, um, they're really the, the meaning of the binary and the need for the binary is erased as we're all entering into the family of Abraham as allowed by Jesus. Um, 
And so I thought that we could talk about that for a little bit. Um, what, what do so many translations get wrong, according to Wright? And maybe the NIV was one of them. And what's the significance of this? Do either of you want to talk about that? The move that he makes here is to say that uh, the neither nor pair uh, works a lot better for the Jew Greek, for the free slave. But then when you get to male and female, what you've got is not a binary that's existing in the abstract, but a quote, a quotation, pardon me, from Genesis 1. Um, now, the, the direction he goes from there, honestly, I, I had a little bit of a hard time following his logic here. Uh, but he says that, you know, the concrete observable differences don't immediately dissolve and disintegrate as a result of this, but uh, that that the salvation in Christ, uh, and, you know, he seems to extend that to the full life of Christ, uh, extends not only across those binaries, but also into the male-female coexistence that, you know, the last phrase seems to imply like i said i, I had a, a hard time with this i mean carla when you read this i mean could you make any more sense of it than that i, I found it i found it interesting too because it does in some way imply that the others are are binary categories that just are right and that they can just be done away with and this implied sort of a whole a more holistic um i want to make like a cycle thing with my hands <laughs> Um, you mm -hmm. know, that, that it's male and female and that that somehow is a whole. Um, and that's, that's terminology that's really difficult. All that kind of um, imagery is difficult for me um, because in some ways it reasserts the binary while also saying all of these things are equally uh, important and a part of the body of Christ or the, in this case, the community of Abraham, the family of Abraham is how he's laying it out, right? That male and female are equally a part of it, not to be done away with, but to be inserted into, uh, with, with common, uh, importance. Um, and that, that was interesting. And again, I, I just, my, my moment is always in that these, these two things, male and female, um, can become, can feel very binary. So this, and, I think if I read it in sense of this is a, a, a these two things are, are things that we all experience and we all, we all kind of understand and have different, different interactions with and that they are equally important to our experience of our faith. Um, that's a thing I think I can get behind. If it, if it feels like these other categories aren't important, but these two categories are still important. So we're going to hold on to these two and we're going to keep reiterating this difference which I actually feel like as he goes through the, the rest of these passages, he does kind of really come back to, well, but see, these two things are, are equally important, but they are still very different. And these are the way that we're, ways that we're treating them as different. And these are the ways that Paul is saying that they're different. Um, so that kind of constant reiteration of difference um, is, is troublesome for me. Um, and I, I need to figure out a good way to articulate that. But again, I think for me, it goes back to what he was warning against at the beginning is that I actually feel like, focusing first and foremost, foremost on those differences rather than on an individual's understanding of oneself or their experience in the world, um, it, it, it tends to put, it tends to put uh, humanity below some sort of systematic thing, which I think is a thing that Jesus warns us about a lot, that actually our, our people, humans, are more important than our systems. And any system that tries to override that, any system that says this, this structure and this system is more important than the people who inhabit it, is is problematic. That's the thing that I think Jesus is constantly overflowing, overthrowing in his in his speaking and work. So so I feel like again, if we get to the point where our 
categories become more important than the people who occupy them, we, we have a, a struggle in terms of, of what, what Jesus has laid out as our way of being in the world and, and how we're executing that. Does that make sense? Yeah. That does make sense. And, and actually, I, I realized uh, when Sheila posed this question to us that I hadn't actually prepared this passage, but I've got it up in front of me now. And yeah. his, his grammatical point does stand. The conjunction changes in the last pair. Uh, now, the direction that he goes with it, I'm not sure that I would go that direction myself. I would probably see that as more of an incidental, you know, sort of cosmetic change rather than something on upon which we should build too much theology. Uh, but uh, I will say that, I mean, e even though his interpretation of it is weird, the grammar is there. Right, right. I want to hear, Sheila, in the show notes, you have a thought here on, on this turning female into male. And I, I'd love to hear more about that, because I think that's really important to this whole conversation. Yeah, I've been I'm trying to think more and more about this as you're talking, Carla. I think you make some really excellent points, especially about, you know, Jesus constantly trying to overthrow and undermine the systems that we put in place. And if you look at these pairs, you know, a lot of them are, um, well, Jew and Gentile, and somehow I just translated into... Um, Spanish, but like Jew and Gentile, like these are, these are cultural constructions and slave and free, like these are cultural constructions. These are things that we've created as humans, but male and female, if we go back to Genesis one, as he continues to remind us to situate the conversation in, like, this is a God created pair. And so I, like, I'm not quite sure, like you said, what the point of that is other than maybe he's just trying to speak back to some kind of Gnosticism. And maybe this is the limitation of reading a text that was initially intended for a conference where lots of other things were happening. Like maybe there was a whole panel on Gnosticism and how this was a preferred way to go about our Christianity. Um, I don't, I don't really know. So I don't know if, if he's really speaking back to something that had happened um, or was a, a significant moment that we can't really see um, and whether or not that's important and worth talking about. But to, to kind of get to your question about the show notes, um, I, I, I think I asked here, like it seems like he's making the argument that men and women were created as different cultures. If he's saying we need to keep these, um, this pair for pastoral practice, um, like what, what does that mean practically? Like if, if Jews and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in you know, the first century had to be treated somewhat differently, and he does, you know, when Paul writes his letters, they, they're written to different communities for particular problems that those communities are facing. Like, what does that mean to us practically? Um, because I don't think that Wright wants to conflate male with female. Like, that's the opposite of his point. Because when that happens, mm -hmm. most of the time when we collapse binary pairs, we tend to um, prefer the culturally dominant half. So, like, the male concept is often privileged and that's kind of been the whole point of feminism in all of its particulars is pushing back against that which seems quote normal <laughs> and isn't the lived experience of at least half of a pair mm -hmm. right right I thought that this is where I get really into the thing of I think it's really valuable to say we don't get to set a male normative to which we all then adhere now in some sort of, of forced identity equality right but that 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 keeping these keeping the categories as both normative, and yet at the same time not the thing by which we rule ourselves. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That all that all things within that are are normative. Um, I think is really important. Um, so I, I just appreciated you pointing that out. That that in terms of like 
deconstructing or collapsing a binary pair, trying to turn one into the other is not a profitable way to go about this. So this isn't to say there is only one gender. It, it's a it's about to me a, a more complicated rather than a, a more condensed way of seeing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that makes some sense to me as well. And 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 once again, I mean, I I think I. I I, I'm sensing, I won't say that I'm reading because I can't point to subjects and verbs where he actually articulates this, but I'm sensing, a again, a certain sort of anxiety that, you know, when you push too far in his mind into the realm of sort of, uh, you know, self-fashioning, to use the English department phrase, mm -hmm. uh, that you you end up discounting the fact that we are created and we are mammals and we are, you know, there is, um, and, and now I'll go from the English department over to the, the philosophy department. There's a facticity to human life that we are thrown onto a certain existence and that we certainly take a stand on that, but that doesn't negate the other side of that dialectic whereby we are, you know, born and enculturated and, find ourselves, if you will, a certain way. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know that N.T. Wright read Heidegger right before he gave this speech, but that's the sort of anxiety that I'm seeing there, that if you go too far into the you-can-make-yourself-anything-you-want direction, then you neglect the you-came-into-this-world-a-certain-way-and-you-shouldn't-forget-that direction. Does that make any sense? Sure. Yeah, I think that does make sense. And I, I think, yeah, all of those things are important to weigh. I um, recently got to be at the Wild Goose Festival. We did a, a mm -hmm. we did a podcast there. And I got to hear an incredible um, conversation with Paula Williams, who's transgendered, and her son, Jonathan. And um, they had a conversation. And it was, it was fascinating to hear from Paula how she felt she had come into the world, <laughs> you know, um, and how in some ways, and I don't, I'm, I, anyway, just for her to talk about the fact that she had come into the world biologically one way and knowing all the time that, that she was another way. And um, so that that's an interesting, when you, when you say that, I agree completely because I think it's a really important part of our understanding of ourselves in the church and all of these things to, to understand the ways we come into the world and also to leave space for the fact that the ways we come into the world are, are slippery. Um, so yeah, I guess that, and I don't mean to get too far off into this because I think part of what we need, we can stick with women in leadership in the church and stick with that. But it's interesting. I've, I've been talking some in my work about women in leadership in the church and I get a lot of conversational pushback about, hey, are you just trying to open one more category of leadership that's still that's still leading out most of, or part of the, the whole? And I, and I keep reiterating, no, I think women in leadership in the church and especially for evangelicals who I feel like those of us who, came from sort of the evangelicalism of the 80s and 90s um, that was really very gendered and complementarian and purity culture and all of those things. Um, that those of us who came out of that have a, have a particular way of seeing the way genders work. And, and for me, processing that story for myself is part of me opening the conversation so that other people who've had different different stories, but the same types of exclusions can, can then share their story. So I think for me, women, conversations about women in leadership in the church are for me about a broader inclusivity that I think is important, but I feel like I'm kind of hijacking things and taking it off in a different direction so we can get back to it. No, I think your points, I think your points are valid and you say them um, much more eloquently and thoughtfully than I can really communicate. But yeah, it seems like when you restrict this conversation of gender to the binary pair, you do miss out on a lot of other people's experience. Whether or not they identify as Christian, they do identify as some some 
space on this spectrum of gender and, and what do you do then when you identify there? Do you just not participate in the community that doesn't recognize you or how does that how does that function? And I, I think that's mm -hmm. where you get into the, like the biological, the biological difference of male and female and the like culturally constructed differences of gender that like, mm -hmm. I think Jesus would completely come and tell us like, you need to stop thinking about these cultural constructions as so important to you. But like there are biological differences between, well, and it, it depends, I guess, what, how you choose to use them and play them out. Sometimes I'm thinking about like right. the difference in our family between, um, you know, my husband, who is a wonderful father, and myself, who, you know, does the best I can as a mom, right? <laughs> I'm never as complimentary of myself, but, um, but the, that like, he cannot share my experience of being a mother in the way that I have an experience of being a mother because he didn't bear our children and wasn't pregnant with them for these months. And so, like, these things that are only um, experiences I can have and, like, a significant part of who I am and even how I read biblical text. Um, he doesn't share those experiences, even though I can tell them about, tell him about right. them, right? Like those aren't things he can understand personally for himself, as I would imagine most other um, men who have not had children um, can do. So I don't know. I don't have a, like, right. know, a really clear thing well, to say I... after that, but that like those, some of those experiences are important too, to who we are and how we live. And those right. are, it's, it when I silly think in some ways, those. Right. I agree with you completely. I really do. And I think, especially for me, like in this thinking about women in leadership, I actually think that there is, I want to put this in quotes, but a woman's way of leading that is, and that feels very binary. And I, I'm acknowledging that, but that there's a women's way of leading that, that is important to this whole, that we, that we, we need some, some fuller expression of the way, the ways that we lead. And so I, I agree with you very much, Sheila, that, that some specific gendered, understanding of the world isn't invalid. It doesn't, it doesn't make that invalid or say that that shouldn't be included or a part of, um, you know what I'm saying? Like that absolutely is a, yeah. is a, a really important piece of this whole puzzle. And I don't want that to go away right? as I'm talking. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and I think, I mean, what both of you are hitting on here is that when we think about uh, human beings in the church, we're talking about, you know, not a single variable system, but something that is immensely complex. Uh, and I mean, we run into our most, um, I would say, egregious errors when we try to reduce everything to one variable. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I think that, you know, Carla, I mean, what you're getting at, uh, the fact that, you know, when when some people say we need to pay attention to the givenness of, you know, the sex with which we are born, let's distinguish between sex and gender for a moment, and we make that the Perfect. only thing that matters, that's a really nasty error. And I think right. what Wright's getting at is, okay, that much is true. Now don't make the, perhaps not as egregious error, but not, but nonetheless, don't make the error of going so far the other way that you pretend right. that nothing is given. Yeah. Right. And therefore disempower, like, the, in my opinion, like that, when I talk about this women's way of leading, I think it, and this is why I've, in talking about this stuff, talked about women in leadership. Um, and sometimes I'm, I want to say diversity in leadership, but I, I think we actually have some correction to make in terms of women in leadership. Um, so, mm -hmm. and this is what you're saying, like, so let's not hop over this, this bit of givenness and, and risk losing a whole section here, but then mm -hmm. let's take that on further into broader anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. That's a really good conversation. We should probably move on to the next section if we're going to finish. Um, 
to her. So the next, <laughs> sorry, it's a really terrible segue. Um, so the next piece, <laughs> really that, necessary. <laughs> uh, scripture that he started to unpack was First Corinthians. Um, you know, the whole book. So as a way to narrow down a little bit, I mean, I think he does narrow down a little bit to maybe um, chapter fourteen specifically. But Carla, was there any scripture that you wanted to point to or read? And it's okay if not. Sure. So let's see. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit about, right, correct me if I'm wrong here, Nathan, but we'll talk a little bit about women keeping silent in the church in the First Timothy passage. Is that true? Yes, yes. Okay. So let's talk about um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 11. And this is the, the covering the head in worship. Um, so I'm going to just... I'm going to just read this, and then we'll talk a little bit about the how he approaches it. Um, so this is also NIV. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, co- with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. And then he goes on to talk about a man ought not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Um, And then he says, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. So it's a super, super complicated passage. And I can't mm-hmm. help but just go straight back to John Milton and Paradise Lost and think about the way that he lays all that out, which is super complicated for me to, to kind of mash those two things. <laughs> and so I'll try to pull them apart, this this passage apart in the way that N.T. Wright does. Um, so he talks about this work and this idea of headship um, in terms of... Uh, like source. So it's not so much one is over the other, but it's, it's where they came from. So again, going back to the Genesis one narrative that, that Adam came from God as he was directly created and then Eve came from Adam. And so it's, it's not so much hierarchy as it is a a source of this is, this is where this all started in the order in which it was done and somehow uh, progression, not of power, but of just plain, this happened first, then this happened and this came from this being, and this came from this being. Um, so that's an interesting way to think about that. Um, the other thing that he says uh, is talks about the way that gender was marked by hair and clothing styles in in the first century here that Paul is addressing. Um, so let me let me see if I can find a good a good summarizing quote here. Another thing, actually, before I do that, to point out in this passage is that both men and women are are praying and prophesying. Like the the verbiage doesn't change for them. Men are praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered. Women are praying and prophesying prophesying with their heads covered. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. are having the same role, the same active work in the church. Those things are happening the same, <laughs> and they are doing it with their different gendered expressions in terms of the way that they're presenting one, themselves. And so part of what N.T. Wright says Paul is saying is. Um, in order to be, in order to worship in an orderly way, because much of what he says Paul is doing is is teaching these churches how to how to have orderly worship. Um, we need to we need to respect our cultural gender no, gender presentation norms, and we need to have um, those things be really clear so that to the to the outside world we look orderly and and like we're doing things um, in a in a sort of right manner. Um, 
so that that's where he talks about these head covering things coming from, that they are more an expression of cultural gender norms than they are any sort of um, overriding, this is how it should be, and it's because of a particular hierarchy. Um, it's more about honoring the culture that was and, and being reflective of that. And again, this is where he goes back to this, this difference idea that, that we are, um, so let's see. So he's, he, he lays all this out and then he says, um, he talked about how sometimes in Christian worship at that point that, he, that women were letting down their hair and acting in freedom and that this was actually, um, uh, hair being loose and head uncovered was actually um, associated with prostitution. And so in order to keep the church orderly, again, and not have these things devolve into something that seemed chaos and, and, um, and immoral, I guess, he, he said that we're not, I'm not congratulating this kind of freedom. I, I want you to keep your di gender differentiation during worship so that it's, that it's in order. Um, so that's how I understood it. Um, is there, is there more there that, that I'm missing? Yeah. If, if I could just add one historical point yeah, that please. really doesn't emphasize here, uh, is that in Corinth, especially the households of the wealthy, uh, would have been courtyard style. So, I mean, it really was a matter of what passersby would see when they saw the church gathering. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the, the, the followers of Jesus already had a bad reputation for the right reasons. And I think St. Paul here is trying to keep them from getting a worse name for the wrong reasons. So, in other words, you know, if, if it is, you know, not necessary for you to let down your hair or, you know, he parallels, parallels it to, you know, uh, if you don't have a real good reason uh, not to show up to church, you know, men wearing Speedos and, you know, women wearing, you know, Christmas lights, uh, then, you know, dress like a Corinthian dresses, you know, don't uh, start to do these things just arbitrarily to exert, you know, a sort of will in the world. Uh, but, you know, be distinctive and be offensive for good reasons, not for arbitrary reasons. I love that, Nathan. I think that's really helpful to think about that, like the ways in which we disrupt and, and what things are worth disrupting over and what mm -hmm. things we're mm -hmm. just disrupting because we, because we can and want to. That's right. And of, and of course, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I won't speak for you two, but I know I've had to say that to my own evangelical students, you know, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, you know, if you face persecution, it might be because of Jesus. It also might be because you're being a jerk. Right. <laughs> well said. Right. Well, that's right. a really good point. I keep thinking of your illustration of the the five acts that we're living in, right? The Shakespearean play mm -hmm. that we're living out and the acts which came mm -hmm. before and how we're living in this fourth act and like Jesus was speaking in act three and was pointing to act five and like would love us all to be in act five at the same point. Like we're stuck here in the middle mm -hmm. kind of elbowing for room. Yes. And I, I think mm -hmm. that's, yeah, a really great way to say it. Like you could be persecuted because of Christ or because you're a jerk, which is it. <laughs> well, and, and I don't, it, it, it doesn't make it any easier though, because I mean, there are passages in Ephesians and first Peter and other parts of the new Testament where it says, you know, slaves serve your masters well, yeah. be subject to the, you know, absolutist semi-divine emperor, uh, because that's, you know, the expectation. And I don't think that the New Testament settles those things so much as it gives us the contours of a sort of dialectic tension. I know I keep coming back to that word. I've been, it's good. I'm sorry. I've been reading Germans, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that it points to the contours of that 
conversation that we need to have, right? In this moment, on this question, is this a matter of, you know, not giving offense for bad reasons, or this is, is this a matter of being a truthful witness, which might give offense? And I mean, that's why, you know, when I think about, you know, women in churches, the the stance that always just bugs the snot out of me is when people take what I read as sort of, you know, concessions to this provincial Roman moment that they're in, and they make those the matters of what they th think of as prophetic witness for our moment. So, you know, what we need to be is more like the Roman Empire and make sure that, you know, women are in their place and so on and so forth. And I think, no, 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 that's, <laughs> that, that's Paul conceding, don't offend for that reason, because now isn't the moment. If we've already been given a cultural moment that's already more like what Christ wants us to be, don't throw it in the garbage. Right, right. I love that. Absolutely. I, I think it is interesting, you know, that we, we sometimes pretend that we're not like we assign equal importance to all passages without understanding that that's actually not a thing we even have access to. We can't, we can't actually do that. So I love, I love the, that idea that we get to act from, from our moment and from our internal, I mean, this whole idea that, that we have the advocate, right? We have an internal mm -hmm. advocate mm -hmm. that, that helps us make these decisions and understand our space and our time in relation to what came before. And that that's the thing we actually get to own. Like we, we don't have to, to put that down and pretend that somehow there's a category of scripture that overrides our, our moment, that our moment is also a part of it. And that, that our, that the presence of the advocate with us gives us that space, you know, um, it's interesting, mm -hmm. interpretively, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, First Timothy 2 does a similar, does similar work here, and I think needs similar cultural context. Nathan, you want to talk about First Timothy? Certainly, and uh, let me, sorry, I, you, you, you caught me off guard there. I was sleeping. Oh, sorry. Which the New Testament also warns against. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I'm going to read a little bit of First uh, Timothy chapter two, uh, which generally speaking is the the passage that people want to point to when they talk about women in the church. I'll start in verse eight here, and, I, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, like I said uh, earlier in the show, one of the things I discovered in digging into these Greek texts is that a lot of English translations just flat out cheat when it comes to these passages. One of the most interesting cheat moments in this passage uh, is that a lot of English translations refer to the women's worship here in Second Timothy as silence or quiet. Uh, but then up earlier in the chapter, uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, it'll translate it uh, something like this. For kings and all who are, uh, he's encouraging them to pray, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Now, what's interesting there is that the Greek, the Greek adjectives there are identical. So, I mean, if you look at it rhetorically, what he says is the 
hope for all of the church and the prayer of all of the churches that we should be able to live peacefully uh, even among you know kings and kingdoms and so on and so forth. And then later on in verse 8, rhetorically, as a subset of that, women should also strive to live peacefully, right? But in English translations, they use two entirely different adjectives to translate that same Greek word. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting here, and, and, and Wright's article really points this up nicely, um, when you deal with the idea of, you know, uh, well, I mean, that you know, the reference to Adam and Eve in this passage, uh, there's a couple different ways that you could link that up with the rest of what's going on in the passage. One is, uh, don't let women teach because they will act as Eve did and lead the man astray, okay? Which, if you read Genesis 3, that's not actually how things happened. Uh, the man was there hearing the snake the whole time. He took the fruit from her, yes, but, you know, it's not as if she did any convincing of him the way it happened in John Milton's Paradise Lost, right? Right. This is, a, this, this is another one of those places where uh, Milton's uh, influence uh, even when people have never read Milton, is always with us. Yes, yes it is. The way that he proposes to read it, and I think this is honestly a better reading, uh, is a fortiori reading, right? Uh, you know, if, you know, men uh, are susceptible to be, you know, led astray by false teaching, then we need to be sure that they are taught well in peacefulness in the church, right? Well, if that's the case, then, you know, so much more so... We should make sure that, you know, women are taught well in the church so that they're not led astray by false teaching, right? Uh, now, I mean, the fact that he, you know, then goes on to, you know, say, because it was woman, not man, who was deceived, right, I think, correctly interprets that as, you know, okay, uh, why in the world would you be more concerned that men are taught well when, you know, by your own stories— it's women you should be concerned with as well as men, right? Now, like I said, I mean, I, I, I've, I've looked at the Greek of this passage, and I don't go the same directions that Wright goes with this. But that said, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll concede, I mean, that the way that he goes, he goes with it here, I mean, is valid given the syntax of the passage. Uh, so, I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, that's my contribution kind of to this conversation uh, you know, I've taken my two years of Greek, I've, you know, taught, I've written up that lesson series that I told you about, and I mean, what he's doing here is valid, even if it makes me a little bit wary that he might be over-interpreting certain bits. Carla, did you have anything you wanted to say there? I'm just looking over my notes yeah. making sure Nathan's answered a lot yeah, of the questions too. I had. So. Oh, I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I talked no, it's great. great. It's fantastic. Great. I just have um, to catch up. <laughs> Oh, the, yeah, I'm sorry. Saying, yeah. Can I do one more bit of Greek? I'm sorry. Yeah, and I was looking at your notes great. here, and I, I skipped entirely over the verb to usurp, uh, which is how the King James translates it. And really, I mean, that one is a better translation than the more modern translations because this is a verb of violent seizure. And the way that Wright, you know, sort of situates it in a reconstructed historical moment is, you know, this is the moment where, you know, perhaps in this particular church in Ephesus, or he he speculates, maybe, you know, in a culture where the women aren't trained rhetorically in spoken Greek, so, you know, when they are hearing the Gospels read or the epistles of Paul read in Greek, they get bored and they start talking over the person talk, reading the epistle out loud. And, you know, what he uses here is a metaphor for a military takeover, right? Don't let the women 
take over the service when there is teaching going on. And, you know, what he argues, and I think he's right, is that that would apply in either direction, right? I mean, you know, if the men get bored, they shouldn't start talking loudly over the speaker either. Right. Well, and I think part of this usurp idea is that that neither becomes overemphasized over the other, right? That that yeah. it's not that male leadership should now be usurped or overtaken by female or female leadership, and and vice versa. Then that the same applies the other way. So that that it is this sort of equalizing, right, mm-hmm. of of the power rather than either one sort of overtaking the other. Um, and I, he he had a thing also here about the submission idea that that he he reads this in full submission, mm. um, not in reference to the men or to the husbands that it that it's to be it's to be the attitude of all learners as submission to God or to the gospel to the thing that they're learning so that mm. the that that submission would be even for men and women and that that it's actually. Um, deeply important that women be allowed to study and learn and not be restrained from it. Um, so that they can be like men in full submission. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I think the only other thing I would add to it is that um, culturally he brings up the point that this letter was likely sent to Timothy while he was in Ephesus and um, the temple, the cult of, was it Diana, um, Artemis? Yeah, Artemis. Was, mm-hmm. Yeah, was extremely important to the city and it was a female-led, you know, priestess, female priestess-led cult. And so to be much like the Corinthians, culturally aware of what was happening in your city so that you weren't identified with this other thing that was very much not Christianity um, was mm-hmm. important. Like, the, right. I don't know. Just, in, I think that's an important point to, for me and for other people who are reading these things, like to keep coming back to these cultural moments and understanding as much as we can about what was happening within them. Right. And again, I'm, I'm, I can't help myself at this point. I mean, that's where it comes back to that dialectic again between your particular moment and the universal drive of the gospel, right? Uh, You know, what we've got to remember is that, you know, the community as it was embodied in Paul's moment is not the eternal form of what church must always be, but it is a moment in this ongoing, you know, act four, act three, however you want to number it that we've been talking about, right? And, and And it pays to remember that our own forms are also not the, you know, final and, you know, uh, eternal right. form of things, but but that we are also scenes in that fourth or third act. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I love that. My kind of last question, instead of a lightning round, I guess this will be my last question for you both, is, um, you know, when, when you come up against folks who wonder, well, if you can't understand this on its own, like, how do you read Paul? When you're reading so much of the New Testament is what Paul has to say to these communities. Like, how do you read Paul in a way that will understand the moment like you're saying Nathan but still also understand the larger information for the universal church to discern and move forward with it's a big question mm-hmm. Carla do you want to take the lead or do you want me to, <laughs> wow. to set you up so that you can dunk it I, th- I think you set me up Nathan that would be fair right, I'll, I'll, I'll toss it up for you and you can uh, two hand dunk this I'm thing right here, yep. um, I, I, I think that the takeaway from right uh and honestly, this is what I take away from most of what I read by N.T. Wright, is to mind the history and realize that you, the reader, are part of that history. So in other words, the things that you see on the page uh, are not simply what's there, although that's certainly part of the picture, but what you bring to it because of the intervening conversations and debates and disputes and sins 
and moments of redemption and all of those sorts of things are also part of the way that you read things. This doesn't take away the authority of the text. What it does is it frames that authority in that ongoing conversation so that we have, at the same time, the responsibility to be faithful to those folks who came before us and the liberty, and I would say also the responsibility, to stand over and against them in those moments when it is our conviction that you could read these texts better. Now, that's sort of a, a mile-high-in-the-sky view of things. It's exactly the sort of thing that N.T. Wright would probably caution people against. But if you look at his big project, I mean, that's really what's going on, is to take on a reading of Scripture that gives John Calvin his place, to be sure, and also gives Elizabeth Johnson her place, and also gives the Patristics their place, and also gives Julian Norwich her place, and also gives, you know, this reconstruction of the first century its place. So... There's the toss, Carla. Dunk at thing. <laughs> it's interesting. I think it, it makes me want to pose a question to you all because we talked a lot about interpretation, and this is um, an, uh, an exegesis-heavy <laughs> uh, episode where we're talking a lot about scripture and interpreting it and that kind of thing. And I, I guess I kind of want to ask you guys: Do you feel like there's a way to? Uh, do you feel like there are deep consequences to our misinterpreting? Because I think that's the part of why literal interpretation and and these types of things have been have been important to the church is mm -hmm. that there's a fear of a, of a particular consequence out that could come out of a misreading. And so part of what I want to posit is that we can let go of that fear of a, of a I think we need to be both uh, meticulous and serious in our reading. And like you said, responsibility to those who came before us and our own responsibility going forward, but also somewhat lighthearted about it and knowing that this has changed. It will change. There are some attitudes with which we go forward that that are that seem universal. But much of this is is for us to understand in our moment, um, and and to have a particular lightheartedness about it that that lets go of some of the fear of consequence that that our very very recent forefathers have held. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like that allows for some level of playfulness and some level of of trust in in uh, a loving God who who we believe in. Um, that even if we get it wrong, that there is a level of grace and, and, and favor for that. Does that make sense? Amen. Okay. <laughs> well, well, let's move on to our, our final section here. And, um, if you have any recommendations, we'll do those. Nathan, if you don't mind again, going first and then passing to Carla and I'll wrap it up. Well, I've already mentioned her, uh, you know, probably just cause I can't hold a thought in my head for too long without running my mouth. Uh, but I'll recommend a medieval writer, Julian of Norwich. She's a 14th century English mystic. Uh, her revelations of divine love is some of the finest theology from the 14th century, and I would say from the Middle Ages. Uh, her approach to the life of faith is really, really good medicine, uh, not only for folks like me who have sort of a rationalist bent, but especially for folks like the students I teach who tend to have more of an experiential you know, personal relationship with Jesus approach. Um, the one moment of her biography that I want to highlight here, and then I'll tell you, just go read the rest of it because it's awesome, is that she had a mystical vision of Christ crucified um, as she lay what she thought dying. Uh, but when this happened and she recovered from the illness, she didn't immediately write it down, but she went and read theology for 10 years so that what she wrote would be adequate to the 
generosity and the grandeur of what God gave her. In my mind, I mean, she is one of my heroes of the Christian intellectual life. Um, yeah, that's what I got. I love that. That's great. Um, I just stumbled upon something much, maybe, I don't know, can't call it less significant, but Julian of Nor Norwich is, yeah. Anyway, um, I and just researching some of this, I found a little question and answer with N.T. Wright on Rachel Held Evans' blog. So I thought, well, that's pretty fun to pull together sort of a Christian feminist that we've talked about and enjoyed with the person that we're discussing today. And the interview talks about a lot of different things, not just women in leadership, but it's um, sort of her listener and reader. Readers wrote in questions that they had for N.T. Wright, and then they had a conversation and, and talked through some of these questions. So it's his perspective on things that Rachel Held Evans' readers wanted to know. Um, so we'll put that link in the show notes. That's Very good. good. Thank you. And my recommendation, I already mentioned it, but um, the Poll for Everyone series seems a really great place to start if you're interested in reading more N.T. Wright but aren't sure quite where to start. It's accessible and um, immediately important to everyday life, which is wonderful. Um, I read, I th like I said, I think it was the compilation of prison letters, but um, I was reading specifically about Philippians and spoke a lot to me. So I would recommend that to y'all. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us again on the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have topic or reading recommendations for f future shows or if you just want to drop us a line. Um, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes from this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Amberly Copeland is our intern. For Carla Ewart and Nathan Gilmore, I'm Sheila Woodruff. We are working on our fall lineup of episodes, so the next show topic should be announced pretty soon, we hope. Um, until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.